Welcome to Interfaith Talk Radio, being brought to you by Dr. Pat Worldwide on Alternative Talk, 11.50 a.m., and streaming at interfaithtalkradio.com. We are grateful you're here with us, and we invite you to become a part of a deepening dialogue on spirituality and social justice. We seek to share the deep spiritual teachings within each of our religious traditions and to honor the healing nature of the wisdom and compassion which is the source of all being. This is a weekly radio show, and every week it begins this way. We are a rabbi, a Muslim minister, and a Christian pastor. However, our rabbi, Brother Ted Falcon, is not with us today because he is home healing from a sinus infection. So first of all, blessings to you, Brother Ted. Jamal and I hope you're feeling better very quickly, and we're missing you already here on the show. I'm a Christian pastor. I'm Pastor Don McKenzie from University Congregational United Church of Christ. I'm Brother Jamal Rahman from the Interfaith Community Church in Seattle. So Brother Jamal and I will be holding the fort today and again sending prayers and blessings out to Brother Ted for his quick healing. But in the meantime, just to remind you, this is an interactive show. And if you would like to become a part of this conversation, please call 425 373 5527 or from Western Washington toll free at 888-298-5569 and for more information please visit our website at interfaithtalkradio.com well Jamal we've just completed uh, what is called in the Christian tradition Holy Week of course which this year includes the Jewish uh, celebration of Passover and we were fortunate, you and Ted and I, to be all together for the Beit Aleph Meditative Synagogue uh, celebration of Passover. That's Ted's congregation, which was held in our church building, actually, on Tuesday evening. And then two, two days later, we were all together again, members of our congregations at our church building for Monday Thursday, which, of course, uh, is uh, a celebration of the Last Supper, or, in effect, Jesus' own experience of Passover. So there are lots of threads coming in and out here, and it was a deep, deep time uh, for all of us. Uh, we were particularly honored, Jamal, that you were there to observe this sort of interaction between Christians and Jews in a, in a time when we look back over 2,000 years of very difficult, painful, and violent, often sad history so I, I was wondering if we could begin this first segment by just getting some more of your comments and observations about what you experienced both at Passover and Monday Thursday, how it felt to be a Muslim in that context and so forth. Well, first of all, I must say, uh, Brother Don, uh, both to you and to Brother Ted, uh, thank you so much for the invitation because I think this is really uh, an integral and central part of interfaith that we celebrate our holidays uh, together. We, we share so much in common and there's so many themes in each of our holidays, whether it's Christian or Jewish or Muslim, which really rings true in each one of our religions. So in these two wonderful events that were celebrated, I became very aware of the similar theme of moving from enslavement to freedom in the Islamic tradition. Yes. <clears throat> That's a very big piece. Then... On Monday, Thursday, the entire idea about community, 
and even communion. In fact, communion reminded me almost of Islam, the word Islam meaning surrender. Right. You know, yes. Uh, well, you know, and normally, I mean, at least in my uh, experience, communion, uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, has been something reserved for Christians. And in particular, many churches would say either baptized people or even members of a particular community mm-hmm. would be... I mean, in other words, the, the experience of communion would be limited to those people. Uh, in our church, uh, we have what we call an open table where communion is available to anyone who wants it, which is not a traditional thing, but we feel it's not only very important to extend the um, meaning of the table of forgiveness and community to anybody and everybody, but to overcome uh, the difficult experience of being exclusive and so forth. So how did that feel to you to take communion and be a part of that? Yes, uh, you know, uh, you know, Islam, as in other traditions, always says that uh, uh, every word we utter, every action we we engage in, uh, is dependent on the intentions. So it is so beautiful that the intentions of you and your congregation, of Brother Ted and his congregation, the intention was to be spacious. That's one of your to good be, words. Yeah. yeah, I love that yeah, word. Yeah. And to be inclusive. Yeah. And it needs to be the same for Muslims, to really be spacious and to be inclusive. And then the celebration is so much more deepened, so much more profound, so much more heartfelt because of that spaciousness. Well, and it was heartfelt. I think everyone who was there at both occasions, uh, it seemed to me anyway, people were feeling a, a, a sense of a new thing happening, a new beginning. Uh, a sense of a deep spiritual energy being shared by everybody present, no matter what. And um, it, as I said to uh, Ted and Ruth, uh, Ted's wife, it, it felt suddenly more, much more complete than it had ever felt before on Monday, Thursday. And, and as I looked back on those experiences, I remembered a feeling of being apart from rather than included in something very important going on. And and so it was wonderful to have that experience. And as as uh, you and I were saying before the the program today, that if, if if we can find ways to include the Muslim community in in those kinds of experiences, and then to experience Ramadan as we have before, and we've been invited by Muslims to experience that, that also is such a deep experience of of communion, actually. It really is communion and community, and you, you've talked about Ramadan, which is coming up in a few months, and when we celebrate the the breaking of the fast, each of the days of Ramadan, uh, those 20 to 25 to 30 days, that's called the iftar. How beautiful it is to break the fast when you start eating with friends who are non-Muslims also. There is tremendous joy and beauty in that. And I think Muslims who have done that and are doing that, they have truly experienced that richness, that ennobling of one's own soul when one extends the table to invite people of different religions to come and share the breaking of the fast. How common is that, Jamal, in, in, in your tradition? How common is it for Muslims to invite non-Muslims to join in that celebration, the breaking of the fast? Actually, uh, even uh, even Muslims who are very conservative 
and shall we say very clenched during the iftar time the breaking of the fast they will want to be inclusive because that is the injunction to be as open and inclusive and break apart any prejudices you have but i think by doing it more and more here in america where the cultural baggage is so much less the idea of inclusiveness of including people of different religions uh, needs to become sort of a central fact very commonplace not uncommon but common so we can take this we jews and christians can take this to be an inspiration uh, and and a model for the ways in which we can invite each other to our tables so to speak and and share uh, in the experiences of as you say the uh, the movement from enslavement to freedom and 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 am I right that Ramadan is it has something to do with that kind of the experience of the providence of God or the grace of God, uh, and in that uh, the movement from enslavement to freedom. In a sense, Ramadan really has many many aspects. One of the aspects is to uh, free oneself by moving beyond the ego, and really starting the process of surrendering to God, which really means that you examine the attachments you have and the attachments to the little ego and make the divine exchange of moving from attachment to the ego to attachment to that one god we all share the god of one so that feels like that's the place where all this connects is the is the loosening of the ego or the grip of the ego on the self and permitting us to move outside of ourselves whether we're celebrating the passover and the exodus from Egypt or Holy Week, the movement from Palm Sunday, where two forces collide, the forces of empire and the forces of God, moving through the darkness of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday to the resurrection. Whatever, they, whatever seems to be underneath that, as you say, is the trying to break open uh, the ego so that we can get out of ourselves and reach out to the other. Yes, that, that is actually... Uh, as you said, Brother Don, not only, not only to be observed and implemented during those sacred festivals or sacred events, which is very important, we remind ourselves of that great need, but this is a central theme in every single religion, that this is the main work for which we are placed here on earth, to evolve into the fullness of our being, which means, can you integrate the fragments of your ego and go beyond that? And I think this is one of the first things I learned from you and, and Ted was the importance of moving beyond the ego, getting outside so that we can be free to embrace the the other, have compassion and so forth. And after I learned that from you both, I began to see how the teachings of my own tradition related to that in ways I hadn't really noticed before. Yeah, I think you're always doing that, uh, uh, Brother Don. Uh, but I think you just saw it in a different light and um, maybe after the break we can talk about it and we have talked about it before in islam such a similarity we have that becoming evolved into the fullness of your being muslim will say evolve into the spirit of jesus within you a right. muslim will say that yeah yeah well it it was a deep time this past week um you, you noted also jamal that the prophet's birthday is uh, celebrated this time of year and, yes. and uh, that again it seems to be another experience of uh, another thread that, that that comes together and uh, so we appreciate this confluence you've been listening to interfaith talk radio and we'll be back in just a minute i don't know what's wrong with me 
I just can't seem to get over this. Change results in loss. With death in the family, divorce, or major illness, there's going to be grief. When you're feeling overwhelmed or like you just can't get through it alone, you can heal through grief counseling. You can call Sybil Lundy at Whole Life Counseling. For nearly 10 years, Whole Life Counseling has been a safe place to come to peace with life changes. Call 206-683-1561 or see my website at wholelifedesigns.com. Would you like one of the most rewarding sales jobs of your life? The Dr. Pat Show has rapidly grown into the number one radio show to thrive by. The Dr. Pat Show is hailed for its remarkable guests, sponsors with integrity, and amazing listeners. Dr. Pat is in search of a creative, self-starting, energetic person to join the marketing team. If you're interested in helping promote and sustain the Dr. Pat Show, please submit your resume to pat at thedrpatshow.com. Again, that's pat at thedrpatshow.com. This is your opportunity to make a difference in your community and the world. Contrary to popular belief, having a baby is not always a happy, glowing experience. Many women develop a variety of mood problems, most often depression. Thankfully, there are many options available to heal or prevent this debilitating condition. Dr. Shoshana Bennett is shining a light on postpartum depression right here on the Dr. Pat Show. So tune in and find out how to help someone you love. For more information about postpartum depression, visit us at postpartumdepressionhelp.com. Stay informed with news, traffic, and weather at the top of the hour, weekdays on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Good afternoon again, and welcome back to Interfaith Talk Radio. Uh, I'm, I'm Pastor Don McKenzie from University Congregational United Church of Christ in Seattle, and I'm here with my colleague, Brother Jamal Rahman. Uh, I'm Brother Jamal Rahman from Interfaith Community Church in Seattle. And we are missing our brother, Rabbi Ted Falcon, from Beit Aleph Meditative Synagogue in Bellevue, who is home healing from a sinus infection. So again, Ted, blessings to you. We were, we've been reflecting um, for the <clears throat> first part of the program here on the meaning of this past week, Holy Week, Passover, uh, and ways in which the themes of that week, namely the experience of the providence of God or the grace of God um, in the movement from imprisonment or enslavement to freedom and reflecting a little bit on ways in which those themes come up in uh, the Islamic tradition. And as uh, Jamal has pointed out, um, Ramadan has aspects of that in the sense that it's an experience of being intentional about letting go of the things that grip our egos and so forth. Um, I think you had also mentioned that the night uh, journey of the prophet is another one of those experiences. Yes, that's a very uh, significant mystical event in Prophet Muhammad's time. And the night journey refers to the time in the 7th century when the prophet was meditating in Mecca and to his astonishment and he was not quite sure what exactly happened, but he found himself being transported horizontally from Mecca to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, he began to ascend seven levels of heaven. That's a night journey. It has many, many deep symbolic meanings, this particular journey. I was just thinking as you were saying that, you know, what would be our own night journeys, right? I mean, where would we go if we took a journey like that? Uh-huh. And what would it mean to go horizontally? What would it mean to go up? 
what would mean to come back down again? Right. You know, the, all those things that... But again, that's, that's uh, a, there's a certain sudden freedom uh-huh. in that kind of thing. Well, what does it mean to you, just at the top of your head, or from the depth of your well, heart? Well, I think it would be, um, you know, as I sit here in this conversation, I think it has to do with getting away from the grip that my ego has mm-hmm. on me. Uh, I remember when I graduated, when I finished graduate school, I had a dream in which my wife Judy and I flew down to the Bahamas in my old 1966 Austin Healey oh, <laughs> into the sunrise. I mean, it was a day journey or a morning journey, but it was the same experience. Um, it, was, it was the experience of freedom coming after some experience of being stuck or being in a narrow tight place and so forth but that's, that's a beautiful interpretation and you know that, that probably is one of the aspects of ascending seven levels of heaven becoming more and more freed right. as you come in closer proximity to God by being conscious of God through remembrance as uh, the Quran would say another aspect which I like very much about the night journey is embedded in this um, story uh, the Insight being that, that if you really want to be happy in life, if you really want to be complete, fulfilled, how important it is to work in the visible world, that's the horizontal journey, as equally as working in the invisible world. So the horizontal would mean really participating in the bazaar of life, buying, selling, having children, marrying, um, doing business, doing work, and the a vertical one would be doing something which takes you outside space and time. Meditation, prayers, sunset, music, and over a lifetime to do it equally. And if that is maintained, then one really creates the ability and the capacity to become fulfilled, working equally in the visible and invisible world. And that feeling of being complete is something every person longs for, whether those words are the words that are used, but, and we do different things to achieve that or try to, but I'm thinking that to to get there, to have that experience of of, um, a spiritual completion takes an intention that is not always part of people's lives. So, in other words, it needs to involve personal practices, spiritual practices, which can be done, let's say, daily. And then in my tradition, it would also include uh, communal worship, which uh, at our church is on Sunday morning. Both are important. I think um, in my tradition, the Sunday morning experience has been uh, important, obviously, and, and very visible, whereas individual practices have not been so uh, visible and, and important, or at least thought about. Right. And, and I, so that's I, a place yes. for improvement. And, and very, very essential. Uh, for In Islam, for example, I think the equivalent of the Sunday worship would be the, uh, the Friday midday prayer, when people gather in community and, and pray together with great fervency and uh, in community. Right. And the personal practice would be the ones which is enjoined on every Muslim to pray five times a day, among other things. To really constantly remind oneself that everything created is impermanent. And then we're here for a a purpose. And the best way to fulfill that is to really, in in the work in the visible world, to always remember God, to be conscious of God. Right, and of course, uh, if we can speak for Ted for just a second, um, the uh, celebration or the welcoming uh, of Shabbat is the same sort of yes. experience, and what a beautiful thing to, 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 
come together in a moment when we step outside of the ordinary uh, routines of life and say we're going to stop those routines for a minute and and experience uh, God's presence with us, experience our presence with each other, give thanks for that, and so forth. And it's so important for our three monotheistic traditions that that Shabbat exists, that the Sabbath exists, even though it feels to me, at least in urban Seattle, as a Christian, we have very little experience of that. People are running frantically seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and there is this desperate desire, not only for the feeling of being complete, but for some some way to pause for a minute and... and um, have those practices, have a moment when we can experience the spiritual energies of place, time, and person, and community, and so forth. Well, like you, uh, I as a Muslim have experienced Shabbat with Brother Ted and with others also, but particularly with Brother Ted. And what a beautiful, uh, sacred experience that has been. And as I've said, what an eye-opener, what a heart-opener to know that in this age and time, particularly in the kind of work that we all are engaged in in the uh, urban setting, how essential it is to take time to be in silence and real silence for a period of time. How refreshing, how renewing uh, that experience really, really is. Even if it's only five minutes a day, yes, at least at the beginning, just to be still, listen, have some kind of practice, light a candle even, anything that puts uh, uh provides that spaciousness um and um we can talk more about that during the during the next segment but as you, you know as we're talking and, and talking more about some of the islamic things i'm i'm aware once again that um we in our culture in the united states know so little about islam uh, we know of the prophet of course we know the prophet's name muhammad um, and we know the Quran. The word Quran is, I think, something that almost everybody knows. Um, but beyond that, uh, and, and we know something about the origins that this happened somewhere in you know the mid first mid millennium of of the Common Era. But I was reviewing some of the dates of the chronology, and these are things we can talk about later. But uh, in the book that you have given uh, both to Ted and to me, No God But God by Reza Aslan, an excellent book, by the way, for our listeners. If you're looking for one book that really uh, gives the essence, history, and practice of, of Islam, this is it, No God But God by Reza Aslan. Uh, there's a chronology at the beginning, and it notes that the prophet was born in 570, uh, but he was 40 years old. 40 years old before he began to receive the revelations that became uh, the Quran. And then there were only 22 years left of his life. Uh, he lived, he died when he was 62. And as you were noting uh, again before the program began, Jamal, the first 12 years of this period of his life were not very productive. What was going on? What, what, was, such, what was the problem there in, in Mecca? Well, he lived in, in a society which was, quote-unquote, pagan, uh, worshipping idols. And his belief, uh, from a heartfelt depth from within him, that there is only one God, it not only rankled many, it created a lot of enemies. And so his message was received 
uh, with great rancor and he had a hard time in the first 12 years after he became a prophet to really spread the message he was very persecuted and that is where this cliched uh, idiom comes into uh, birth that no one is a prophet in his or her own homeland so when he was in mecca and he was preaching so hard uh, with such fervency with such uh, depth very few people listened to him some did but but then after 12 years they they there was a shift there was a shift and he he and his community moved to medina that's right that's called the hijra hijra literally means the flight the flight yeah. and the shift and there was a set of circumstances that created that and once he moved to medina there was this shift which is a very important psychological emotional spiritual term in islam everything changed his fortunes reversed. Well, and we're going to talk more about that when we come back, but you've been listening to Interfaith Talk Radio and we'll be right back. University Congregational United Church of Christ, located at 4515 16th Avenue Northeast, right across from the Burke Museum, wants you to know that it is a liberal and inclusive congregation waiting to welcome you to worship, education, fellowship, and service. We need your help to say yes to God's purposes. For more information, log on to universityucc.org. That's universityucc.org. Or call 206-524-2322. That's 206-524-2322. Did you know that your own stem cells are the foundation for your everyday health renewal? Did you realize that you continue to produce stem cells as an adult? Stem cells are a part of the body's defense and renewal system, along with the immune system and digestive tract. This system is responsible for the replacement of damaged cells, damaged cell systems, and is at the heart of the healthy body. Yet it has been discovered that many people have a compromised ability to keep producing healthy stem cells and are suffering from the symptoms of premature aging. Just visit adultstemcellnutrition.com and see what your own body can do for you. Release the negative emotions from your past to bring you your dreams into reality. The Empowering Your Life Seminar transforms the way you think. It helps you remove the blocks that prevent you from doing, having, or changing what you want. Limiting decisions, limiting beliefs, and conflicting values can be eliminated. Call 1-800-800-MIND or go to nlp.com to learn about the May 4th through 6th event in Seattle. Mention the Dr. Pat Show when you call. The Empowerment Partnership. Whatever you think you are, you're more than that. Spread the word. Your favorite shows are on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Good afternoon again and welcome back to Interfaith Talk Radio. I'm Pastor Don McKenzie from University Congregational United Church of Christ in Seattle. And I'm Brother Jamal Rahman from Interfaith Community Church in Seattle. And this is a weekly radio program, and normally there would be three of us. Our brother, uh, Ted Falcon, Rabbi Ted Falcon, is at home healing from a sinus infection. And again, Ted, God bless you. We hope you get well soon. Uh, we're missing you here. Uh, we were just saying to each other during the break, you're our rock, you're our Abraham. We're a little bit like loose cannons without you, so you better get back. Um, <laughs> In the meantime, we are uh, we have gotten into a conversation uh, Jamal and I have um, concerning um, Islam and how it feels to be a Muslim, and we began that by getting his observations about the experience of communion, quote unquote, during this past week, Holy Week, when 
uh, we, we three were together at the experience of Passover at Ted's congregation. And then two days later, um, at the experience of Monday Thursday at our congregation, which is in effect a Christian experience of Passover in a way that's a complicated thing and we'll get into that probably some other time. But the main thing was to find out how Jamal felt about being there and we were so glad you were there because you brought uh, another perspective to that Jewish Christian experience. And as we've been sort of drilling down on that, um, as we ended the second segment a few minutes ago, we were talking about the prophet and the fact that he was born in 570 in Mecca, was 40 years old before he re received his first revelation, and then he had 22 years of his uh, religious leadership. Uh, but the first 12 years were difficult, and as you said, Jamal, there there was a, a shift. Uh, they moved from Mecca to Medina. There was a, a dramatic transformation and um, then the last 10 years of his life from age 52 to 62 were really quite different. Tell us more about that. There was some not only mental and spiritual uh, energies going on, but some actual battles. Yes. First of all, about that shift, really it is about uh, every human person's life. Uh, a Muslim psychologist or a spiritual psychologist will ask, what is a hijra in your life? Things are desperate, not looking good. But just maybe if you pay attention, you will see and hear and feel signs. And if you act upon it, your entire life might, might change. So the question posed is, what is a hijra in your life? In Prophet Muhammad's time, things were very, very dismal, dark. And then he had this visitation from a delegation from Medina saying, please come and be our leader. Oh. And that was not fully expected. And he acted on it. And of course, his community was being harassed and, uh, you know, in the, on the point of being killed. So he went just in the nick of time. He made that shift. And once he went there, he was able to start this community. But not to forget that it was a very minuscule, budding, embryonic community. Right. And from all sides, they faced not only danger, but physical danger because... They're all so eager to exterminate this small community mm. that had the audacity to say there's only one God. So those battles that you have mentioned were really all defensive battles because they were always on the verge of being attacked. And, you know, Muhammad is considered in a stereotyping as one who fought so many battles. He knew nothing about fighting. He was not a military commander. He was a leader of a community, a spiritual leader. And now suddenly they come to him and say, we are being attacked. Save us. And now, um, they were attacked by whom? I mean, there were, ah. there were pagans, there were Christians, there were Jews in the Arabian Peninsula in those days. And, and as I read uh, this book that you've given us, yes. um, the, the Jewish community was there. They were good neighbors. They, were, they, were, they, were, they spoke Arabic. They were a part of the the culture and so forth. Christians, it's not as clear that they were such good neighbors because Christianity had by then become a kind of a proselytizing group. So there were some who probably weren't such good neighbors. And then there were this amorphous group called pagans, mm -hmm. which um, I guess the word pagan refers to uh, someone who, well, I think for our context, it's someone who does not believe in the one God. Uh, and, and so were those the, the people who felt uh, one way or another negatively toward uh, Muhammad and his yes, group? Yes, it was the pagan tribes. 
and they very much wanted to totally exterminate. And then, unfortunately, historically, it looked very evident that Muhammad would not survive. And so, historically, it's a long story and complicated. The Christians and Jews who had actually signed a treaty with Prophet Muhammad that they would, if he uh, would be the leader of their community, not in terms of having domination over them, but living together in coexistence, uh, they would come to his aid if they were attacked by these pagan tribes. At some point, they did not follow that. Uh, at, at sometimes they sided with the pagans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it goes back and forth. And, and that has given rise to some animosity, historical animosity. Right. It's, uh, am, it's amazing how the current understanding of our, from our culture's point of view of, of the meaning of Islam, which appears to be violent, and uh, the word terrorist is used often in reference to Muslims, um, how different that is from the reality of the beginnings of the faith I mean, the same could be said uh, of Christianity, and that's that's another program. But um, I think one of the gifts you bring to us, Jamal, is helping us all in this culture to see how these things got started and what the reality was at the beginning of Islam and what the intentions of the Prophet and his community were for the meaning of their faith for the world. Yeah, well, thank you for your gracious words, Brother Don, and for your willingness to really uh, engage. Uh, it certainly was a situation where this embryonic movement was in danger of being exterminated. The miracle is that it survived. So today, when Islam is a very huge religion, 1.6 billion people, and one talks about terrorism and militarism and, and aggressiveness, one forgets that when it started, as I keep repeating again and again, it was a very small, uh, helpless, defenseless group that somehow through a miracle it survived. It didn't win all the battles. It lost some battles. But the amazing uh, historical truth is they were able to go through that and survive and then prosper and win. That is a miracle, actually. And and what, what was, just to drill down a little further on this now, what was the prophet... What was Muhammad doing before he was 40 years old? I mean, what was his life? What do we know about that period uh, of his life? Well, be, you know, before that, he was, uh, just before that, he was married to uh, this wonderful lady named Khadija, who was 15 years his senior. Mm. And she was also his employer because he was a caravan trader. And so he learned the art of business, uh, mainly through the employment of someone who became his wife subsequently, with whom he was married with for 25 years. So in an age when it was the norm to have many, many wives and concubines, he was with her for 25 years and someone who was 15 years his senior, which is the radical, you know, from every aspect. Right. Right. Uh, you know, he's very often criticized for his marriages, but for 25 years he was with her. He had 10 more years to live. And after that... Uh, he married, they say, eight or nine times. The exact number is not known. But each one of his wife was either a slave, a widow, or a divorcee, except for Aisha, right. daughter of his best friend. All considered discards in that community. So, so his message was, if I'm, as a prophet, am marrying these so-called discards, then it's prejudice on your part to consider widows, divorcees, uh, as 
quote-unquote discards. So this was one way of dealing compassionately, I think, I'm guessing from what you're saying, with this, the reality that women had been, especially widows and so forth, marginalized. And slaves also, totally, yes. And slaves, yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. Marginalized so horribly oh, yes. by, the, by the culture. Um, I could see that this would be one way, an accepted way of of helping people to cope with that reality by bringing them into some kind of other uh, Oh, yes, yes. Which is why uh, in the Islamic culture, the people who are most enthusiastic about Prophet Muhammad with a heartfelt joy within them are women. Mm. So the people who, who were his community were mostly women, and among them the most marginalized slaves, orphans, mm. widows, divorcees, mm -hmm. uh, colored people, mm -hmm. blacks. Mm -hmm. And the history is he treated the minorities that, in that time with, with great sense of egalitarianism, which is why in Africa, Islam spread so rapidly. They never forgot that. So, so one of the, as I'm remembering now, another conversation we've had about the role of women. So the prophet really was trying to not just... Um, provide for these women, but was teaching an equality between men and women that was unusual for that time. Am I right? Absolutely. In fact, even by today's standards, if you ask any academic professor, most will agree that Prophet Muhammad was the world's most radical feminist. Mm -hmm. Revolutionary, actually. Mm -hmm. Because in the 7th century, the Quran gave women divorce rights, property rights, inheritance rights, and his own life and his relationship with his wives and other women was for Muslim men and women very, very exemplary. However, this angered deeply, in a most uh, rancorous way, the authority of men. They had to give up their dominance. Right. And they were furious. So after he died, they in a sense took their quote-unquote revenge. Mm. And they again reestablished their dominance by reinterpreting the, script, the scriptures of the Quran. Interesting, because in Christianity, I mean, Jesus has been described the exact same way that you described the prophet as the first feminist. And, and, and the experience of the early Christian church did have things in it that are not there today, the equality between men and women, the, the sharing of material goods, nonviolence, and um, something else I've, I've lost for the moment. But but these things come and go. I mean, the, we, we make headway with something and then we, as you say, our egos get threatened, our mm -hmm. male egos, and the world shifts again back to something where male domination is, is, um, is the... So also in Christianity, you would say there's a huge difference between the time of the early Christian church and the way Christianity is today? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the church between... The, the time of, of Jesus and um, the moment when the Emperor Constantine legalized the Christian faith, which was a period of, well, between, let's say, between um, around 50 CE to 317 CE, a long time, so, uh, 250 years. Um, the church was, first of all, as a group, marginalized. They were illegal. They refused to serve in the army. They they held their nonviolent um, the belief in nonviolent resistance. Um, they believed in holding material goods in common, sharing in the knowledge of the faith. There was no hierarchy, and um, 
the equality of men and women. It was very important. And, and those things got lost as soon as Christianity became part of the domination system. And, and uh, we're getting the signal it's time to take a station break. But uh, And we'll be back to talk about those things more. But in the meantime, you've been listening to Interfaith Talk Radio. And we'll be back in a minute. Church of Christ wants you to know about the God is Still Speaking campaign, a national effort to let everyone know that this denomination welcomes everyone, no matter what, to the worship of God and the service of the church. We believe that God has much, much more to tell us about the good news of the gospel of Jesus and about what love can do to help us with this beautiful but troubled world. To find out more, log on to www.ucc.org index.php. We wish you blessings for your life. Hello, this is Sue Newfeld Ellis. In our fast-paced, busy world, my new CD, Serenity Through Meditation, is just what you need. Through Stephen Halpern's sonic music entrainment and my voice, we will comfortably guide your brainwaves to that theta state of deep relaxation. To order your free copies of 25 Stress Reduction Tips, go to quantumhealing.us or call 425-455-4207. Call the Oprah of Radio by her listeners. Award-winning host Dr. Pat Basile is blowing the doors off of traditional talk radio. Get ready for an energizing delivery and powerful interviews with leaders in the field of human potential. Dr. Pat's fresh new perspective on living life full out has catapulted her show to the top of talk radio. Tune in and Dr. Pat will help you thrive instead of merely survive. Visit the Dr. Pat show.com that's t-h-e-d-r pat show.com for listening times in your area good news belgium we're streamed worldwide at 1150 kknw.com alternative talk 1150 a.m good afternoon again and welcome back to interfaith talk radio a weekly radio program on a deepening dialogue on spirituality and social justice we are a rabbi, a Christian minister, and a Muslim Sufi teacher. I'm Pastor Don McKenzie from University Congregational United Church of Christ in Seattle. I'm Brother Jamal Rahman from Interfaith Community Church in Seattle. And we are missing pretty desperately our colleague Rabbi Ted Falcon from Beit Aleph Meditative Synagogue in Bellevue. Uh, Ted is at home uh, healing from a sinus infection we hope swiftly and ted we miss you we send you our blessings and there are many times in this conversation when uh, we've stumbled and wish you were here to help us not only get out of wherever we were but to offer your uh jewish uh perspective on on these issues that we're talking about and We've uh, been talking about the life of the prophet um and noting that in the culture of the united states um, not much is known yet um, uh, on a wide basis about uh, the origins of Islam and the life of the Prophet and so forth. And Just to review again quickly that timeline, he was born in 570 CE, had his first revelation at the age of 40, and then there were two, sh- two, two periods, as Jamal has pointed out, uh, the first 12 years in Mecca and, the, and then the final 10 years in Medina, where he had his greatest success as a religious leader but as you were pointing out uh jamal he was uh, he was mystic he wasn't just a preacher or a teacher and in fact the reception of the 
the revelation of the, what became the Quran was a mystical experience. Yes, and that was, as you said, at the age of 40. What is not known by non-Muslims is that for at least 30 years, they say, or at least 25 years uh, before that, uh, he was a very, very deep and consistent meditator. Even as a young child, sometimes uh, they say at the age of 10 or 11, he would retreat in the mountains and just go deep into silence. He was so distraught by what is called the, the savagery, the arrogance, and the ignorance of his time, which was called the, the period of Jahiliya, ignorance and savagery. Time of ignorance, yeah. Yes. <laughs> a lot of recklessness, a lot of, and especially he was concerned about female infanticide. Uh-huh. When they would bury in the earth uh, female infants when they were born, because they were uh, female. There were too many of them in, in, in their estimation. Uh, and they, this was their attitude, their disregard. And that almost has become like a metaphor for what is happening in Islam today. But that particularly disturbed him. And he would meditate and meditate, sometimes for days and nights at, uh, uh, on end. So this background of receiving this revelation at the age of 40 is really preceded by long periods of contemplation and silence. And how common was that in that in that part of the uh, world in the Arabian Peninsula at that time? I and mean, were would, were many people experiencing that kind of spiritual uh, experience? Yeah, not many, but th- there were few uh, from different, even among the pagan tribes. Uh, there were people who used, used to really go deep into contemplation and commune with the mysteries, as it were. And he, being from that environment, he he was aware of that, and he, in his own way, created his own periods of silence and communing with the mysteries. It's fascinating to think that another universal theme that you and Ted and I hold in common is this experience of the, of the time of ignorance. Um, I mean, that we all have our own personal times of ignorance. Um, in Christianity, the Dark Ages, I think, is one of those times. Um, and so there's the time of ignorance in um, Islam, or the, what preceded Islam, I should say. Yes. Uh, it'd be interesting. I'd love to hear, hear Ted talk about where that comes up in Judaism. Um, but we have, we all have our own periods when things are not clear, when we're numb, uh, when we're off the track. Um, uh, I think of in Judaism, if I can speak briefly about this, uh, the prophets Amos. Micah, Jeremiah, and Isaiah were all people rising up out of a time of ignorance somehow. After the death of Solomon, things kind of got off the track. Uh, Ted, I hope I've conveyed that accurately. If not, you can correct me next week. Um, But I think a question that we ask as religious leaders of our own congregations and others is, you know, where have our times of ignorance been, and are we in one as a community even as a global community, now. Well, if it is, that's the case, uh, there's good news because that's almost a definition of the coming of a prophet or, uh, or, or a guide or right. a messenger or a teacher, a great teacher, because uh, that's always preceded by that dark, chaotic time. And that's why prophets or guides or messengers or great teachers are needed to really bring the, t- the people, as it were, from the darkness into the light. One of my teachers said... Grief is the most visceral announcement that all is not well. Uh-huh. And I think of what's going on in the world today. Uh, we've talked about this before. Wars, uh, 
all kinds of injustice, um, what's happening in Africa and Darfur, the AIDS epidemic, um, the, the tremendous gap between the rich and the poor, yes. uh, all kinds of racism, as you have mentioned, and, and classism. We are so privileged in this culture, and extremely so here in Seattle, Washington, um, that sometimes it's easy to lose sight of those things. But I think each person, um, we hope um, this is true of all of our listeners, uh, has a desire deep inside to to connect with something that would release us from a time of ignorance to something where the world could wake up and take a new... take. Uh, be directed spiritually in a new direction. Take I, a new direction. Absolutely, Brother Don. I think, the, and the, I think the, the insight from all the traditions, or many of them, is that this will come when only we get in touch with our own inner Messiah. So it's not an outer Messiah or prophet coming. It's our own messenger, guide, teacher from inside us, which has to emerge, evolve from within us. And I think that's happening more and more. I think more and more people on a, in, a greater, in greater number, numbers are really engaged in really growing their consciousness and joining. And because of the internet and mass communication, I think they're joining up. And I think that is a new revolution, as, as is a common cliche. We are the ones we are waiting for. <laughs> right. And I think that another dynamic that we are experiencing is the the reality that during any time of ignorance, any dark period or any period without light, something new mm-hmm. can be being born underneath it. Um, I had a college textbook, which I failed to read in college, but read, fortunately, later, called The Waning of the Middle Ages by a Dutch historian named Johan Heisinger. Uh, but the, the, and his theme was that underneath the, what appeared to be a time of kind of flat, static, not too much happening. Uh, this is Europe, of course. Um, the Reformation and the Renaissance were being born. And so we have Luther and da Vinci and all these incredible things that happened. And it feels, and we've said this before among us, that during this period of, of violence, ignorance, and, and injustice, something new is being born again. And so this kind of spiritual awakening that could lead to a more just society to more to more personal wholeness and healing that's being born and it's an exciting time although painful to be alive and to be experiencing that i i truly feel that uh, brother don it is really happening i can sense it it vibrates it resonates with me and i have great faith i'm very very optimistic that because of this grassroots movement for the willingness to be involved and in growing our consciousness it is going to create an enormous change. I love that quotation which we have said several times. Faith is the bird that sings in the dark, knowing that dawn is coming. Oh, I love that. You know, what that reminds me of is a poem by Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. That's Say yours again. Faith is the bird. Faith is the bird that sings in the dark. Sings in the dark. Knowing that dawn is coming. Amen. Yes. Yeah. It is it's bound to come. <laughs> now, in, now, in Islam, we are on a different topic, we have a lot of references to birds uh, in our scriptures and also extra-Quranic sources. Do you have that in Christianity? 
like the bird of spirit from within you. Uh, well, the, the certainly one one symbol of the Holy Spirit coming down to uh, earth, especially at the at the moment of Jesus' own baptism, would be the dove. So yes, there is a there. The bird is something that symbolizes um, movement, uh, flight, and freedom. Um, things I've not, not actually thought too much about before in terms of my own experience. Uh, that is my own Christian faith. But yes, the dove, the descending dove, represents the the movement of God's Holy Spirit into our beings. Mm. And in Islam, you know. When we have faith and we're giving praise to God, we are creating feathers and wings to the birth of spirit within each one of us. They'll rise and soar. And uh, in the extra-Quranic sources, it's also a symbol of gratitude. Mm. You know, Prophet Muhammad said, have you watched a bird when it sips water? It sips water and then it tilts its neck backward, not only for the water to flow through, but to send praise and thanks heavenward, oh, to thank God for that. That's nice. It's a symbol of gratitude. You know, when I was healing from my surgery back in February, I um, would sit and look out our front window, and there was a seagull. I don't know if it was just one, but several days in a row, I saw a seagull fly out um, past the window, and, and I did have a sense that that had something to do with what we're talking about, that, that symbol of uh, freedom, of healing, of wholeness, of the desire to move in that direction and so forth. It was a reassuring moment uh, seeing that bird. So maybe we all really have that sense of soaring freedom. Yeah. Uh, and just talking on that same um, theme, in the Quran there's a lot of emphasis on realizing that uh, animals, birds and animals and beasts and uh, the animal kingdom, they're just communities like our own. So uh-huh. we must treat them very, very well. Not that Muslims do, uh, yeah. universally. Yeah. But that is an injunction in the Quran. Well, and you know, the, the this gets back um, to that sense that Muhammad was having mystical experiences, that experience of the real presence of God, the immediate presence of God, um, that's the way I would describe Jesus as a mystic. And I know that Ted would have the same similar things to say about many of the important Jewish figures. And Moses included, of course, because he was having that incredible experience of the immediacy of God when he received the, the message to go back to Egypt to retrieve and to free the Hebrew people. Um, so mysticism is one of those places where we you all meet. We all meet, yes. and uh, we need to know more about what that means and what it has to offer, and so forth. Uh, I would like to suggest to you, Brother Don and to Brother Ted, that we start the movement that from next year we also, besides these events that we've talked about, we celebrate together. Let us also celebrate the birthday of Prophet Muhammad together. Good idea. Yeah. That'll be such a healing moment for Muslims and such a necessary one. Okay. Uh, we will put that into the hopper and put that on our agenda to think about. Uh, you've been listening to Interfaith Talk Radio, a weekly radio program on spirituality and social justice. And uh, we've been here uh, missing our colleague, Rabbi Ted Falcon. So, Rabbi Ted, we send you our blessings. Hope you get well soon. I'm Don McKenzie. I'm Brother Jamal and my brother Ted. Uh, blessings and prayers to you. And we'll be back next week with Dr. Pat Basili as our guest.